Hey everyone, Justin here with HuntLink by Servicide. I am joined on the mic by a special guest here. He's been on many episodes, um, been a longtime Servicide member, Brian Halchick. What's going on, man? How's it going, man? It's been way too long since I've been on here. It has, it has. So we've been meaning to do a bunch of episodes. We've done so many hunt links together over the past couple years. Um, definitely been, both of us been super busy and our schedules have kind of been colliding a little bit, but um, we were able to finally make it work. But I'm pretty sure we'll have to dig in there deep, but I'm pretty sure we didn't even get to talk about our turkey hunt a couple years ago when you finished your Grand Slam. We might have, I'll have to go back in and look, but um, this episode is actually going to be on out-of-state hunting. Um, Brian has went to multiple states this year, actually even out of the country. I would be a Providence, I, I would believe. Um, but you, um, you've you been to a bunch of different places, so we wanted to get you to jump on, talk about your season, you know, kind of how you manage, you know, working a full-time job that's pretty strenuous, having a family. You know, I know you recently got married, um, and then also doing all your dream hunts. So, I'm going to let you take it away. Um, as y'all can tell, I'm a little under the weather, so I'm going to try not to sniffle and, and snot and all that stuff while we're, while we're talking. Um, but I'm going to let Brian take it away. Um, and uh, Brian, I guess start out from the beginning, man, of uh, how your season started. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. I guess we could really kick it off with the bear hunt that we went on up in Maine because that was really my first hunt of this season, which was kind of – you know, pretty random and, and out of the blue. I know you could probably talk about it more about how, we, you know, we got all set up on that one, but uh, we ended up going up to Maine to hunt some black bears uh, through, uh, was it a raffle or something that you won, Justin? Yeah, so uh, pretty much um, one of our partners, Wilderness Freaks, makes, um, you know, bear attractants and scents and stuff. They put in their baits and make traps, things like that. Well, um, I actually bought some product and your name gets entered. Well, there was actually a lot of people entered and I actually won. It was all expense hunt. Um, I had to pay for my food um, and I had to pay to get there and then obviously my tags. Um, but lodging was free. The hunt was free, you know, gas to get to the sites, all that stuff. Um, and I got to do three types of hunting. Um, so I got to uh, run dogs, um, got to steal hunt. Well, I guess it'd be two, two, t well, no, three. Yeah, because we trapped too. So trapping and then running dogs, and then baiting, and then steel hunting. So four types of hunting, um, all included. It was super awesome, and he told me I could bring a guest. So um, I was like, well, I was like, I know um, who exactly who I'm going to bring, but I posted it to everyone, and I knew you would speak up because I knew you, you, know, you could kind of work around your work schedule a little bit, um, and uh, you were able to come. So it was, it was a super awesome experience, and I'm glad we got to kind of do that together. Yeah, man, it was a great time. Really a last-minute endeavor for me. I think what we kind of scheduled all this stuff like a week or something before the actual hunt. Yeah, yeah, but, to warm, warm up. It was a good little warm-up to get us out and get us walking and, and all that stuff. Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't have any success, but, you know, we did have a ton of fun, and we did tree a, a little bear cub that neither of us wanted to shoot because the dogs were also chasing the 300-pound mama. <laughs> yeah. Thought we were going to get a chance at her, but that didn't really pan out. But, you know, that was pretty great. I, you know, drove up there from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was about a 12-hour drive. Well, actually, it was more than that. I drove up to northeast Pennsylvania the day before, stayed at my parents' house, and then drove the 11, 12 hours or whatever it was up to Maine. And, uh, you know, first night we get up there, and 
go sit on a bait for a couple hours as soon as I got there. We got back, and, man, they had lobster and mussels and clams and all kinds of good food for us. I'm like, wow, this is going to be a really good trip. Fresh, good. fresh lobster, <laughs> fresh made seafood. It was, it was awesome. Then, uh, you know, we were, we were sitting there talking and dinner, and uh, it turns out, you know, we could hunt with dogs and, you know, you know, me and if you listen to the previous podcast, hunting with dogs is one of my favorite things to do, no matter what it is. So I jumped all over that offer. Um, typically they don't really hunt dogs the first week. They spend most of their time, like getting the dogs back in shape and getting them on some bear tracks. And then really the second week is when they start taking people out. But, you know, I think you and I were both under the, um, impression of we don't really care how good the dogs are doing we just love watching the dogs work and running bears with the dogs so heck let's do that instead of sitting on a bait all day well so, too sitting on a bait or sitting in the in the lounge like i know some people enjoy that to get away from the wives and stuff like that but i mean i i want i want the experience i want to experience something new see if i like it see if i enjoy it and also we got to see all the different types of hunting so you kind of get to like pick now if you ever want to go there again especially on a guided trip you kind of can focus on one thing you know i think the really great thing about that trip you know wasn't necessarily you know the all the different options of you know hunting that we had but you know they really took the time to teach us about maine wilderness the different things that they do up in maine how they train the dogs how they set their uh, traps up and, you know, how they set their baits up and everything. You know, we even went out, you know, as we were running the dogs, we were picking mushrooms and all different kinds of mushrooms. They were teaching us about all the different plants and trees and everything. So, you know, it was a really great learning experience, you know, for me just outside of hunting itself. Yeah, it was definitely awesome. And I'm going to get back up there and, um, you know, he, uh, Mike's actually a member of service side now. Um, and I, I talked to, um, uh, gosh, kid drawing a blank here now. Um, ah, shoot. What was his partner's name? I completely drew a blank. Oh yeah. George, George. Um, which you think I would know that considering he's the only George I know. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, him and George, uh, both gotten a service side so we're definitely going to get back up there and um i'm really excited i want to trap one i want to trap one for sure yeah yeah i'm i'm really looking forward to going back there um but so you um and then i mean soon as you finished that i mean that was a great hunt we got to hunt a week obviously the weather wasn't in our favor because we had a hurricane like the first hurricane in like ever hit slam into maine causing the it to be dark 30 to 45 minutes before it was supposed to. And then obviously the rain. So, um, which was yeah. like never ending and the bears, especially going to a bait site, they, they kind of know what's happening. You know, they're kind of acclimated a little bit. So them not being able to smell just kind of ruins it. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was tough sitting on those baits, especially with the weather conditions we had and everything. But man, I had, I had a blast running with those dogs. I was, that was a ton of fun. Got a bunch of, great pictures so go on the service side uh facebook page you could see those pictures of the dogs running and the bear that the bear that we did end up treeing and everything and but uh yeah running through the main wilderness chasing dogs and all of that stuff man i i couldn't get enough of it i didn't want to go home no i i get it man I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to the next one i was talking to my uncle about that and i'm like we're definitely gonna 
make it happen again for sure. Yeah. Yep. But, uh, yeah, after, after that, that really kicked off my season. And then, you know, bird season opened up in Pennsylvania archery. I didn't, I didn't go, I didn't go archery hunting all that much this year. Cause I had a lot on my plate and, uh, really wanted to spend time with the, with the dogs. But certainly after that, I went up to Newfoundland for, uh, for a moose hunt up in Canada. And, uh, funny story, me and, uh, me and my buddy were at work one day this was back in 2019 and we were just you know talking about different hunting trips and what we want to go on and all that stuff and the conversation around moose came up and you know my family we all went on a moose hunt you know several like way way back when back when i was in uh, high school and uh you know it was like a 90 some percent success rate on moose up there so you know, we started talking about that, and next thing we know, we're on the phone with an outfitter up there booking a moose hunt all in the same day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the The hunt was actually supposed to be in 2021, but because of the virus and them closing down the, the border, uh, the hunt kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed, and, and they opened up the border, but they still had strict vaccination requirements and all that. So it got pushed again until finally this year in 2023, we were able to go. And uh, what's what was really great about that, our hunt got moved right into the middle of the, the moose rut up in Newfoundland. So um, it, it really helped our chances in terms of being able to call moose in and hear where they are and, and all of that fun stuff. So... You know, we were really excited about it. Um, my buddy's in West Virginia, and I'm I'm in Pittsburgh, and we made the decision to drive. We did a whole bunch of different kinds of analyses on, you know, what's the better route to take in terms of flying versus driving, and there were there were pros and cons to, you know, both of these concepts. And um, so, you know, we we built out an Excel sheet with all the different flight options, the cost to fly, the cost to, you know, bring the moose meat back as well as, um, you know, the antlers and all of that stuff. Now I did have, I do have a, an extra advantage in terms of flying because I do travel a lot for work. So I built up a lot of points with, uh, with an airline and then also got to their highest level of, uh, reward status. So, it came out like, you know, I get like eight free check bags up to 70 pounds or something like that. And uh, so bringing the moose meat back wasn't really the the challenge in terms of the terms of the cost, just from our perspective. Um, but if you're considering flying for, you know, a moose hunt, especially with multiple people, that's definitely a, a bigger consideration to the total cost of the trip. But yeah. We made the we made the decision to drive um, just because, you know, for multiple reasons. But even with, um, you know, the free baggage, it was still looking like it would be cheaper to drive out there and back. Um, just looking at gas prices and the the tickets to fly up there and all of that stuff, and you know, overall really less hassle, especially with two people being able to take turns driving um, and, uh, you know, being able to switch. So that was a pretty key advantage. But overall, it was 36 hours of travel time 
which included, um, and that, that was one way, 36 hours, one way of travel time. And that included a seven hour ferry ride. So if, if you aren't familiar, Newfoundland is an Island up in the, you know, Northeast part of Canada. So we ended up driving from Pittsburgh all the way up to, um, Nova Scotia and then drove the truck up onto this giant ferry took a seven hour ferry ride onto the island and then we had another four hour uh drive because we were hunting at the top the highest top end of the island as well so once we landed off the ferry it was another four hour drive and uh yep i was gonna say with with doing those types of traveling and i always want to bring this up especially doing like a hut link like that like obviously it's always easier to to get help like do it with a buddy someone you trust someone that you can do it with um and then deciding whether it's worth it to fly or drive because it it all seems great you know we're all gonna go out west we're all gonna do this and then you start thinking okay well when you if you kill something you got to get the head back you got to get the meat back you know, what, what's the flight cost? Do you have hookups on bags? You know, are you going to meet the weight requirements? Um, yep. there's, there's so many things that can take into consideration besides like license prices and, you know, basic stuff like food and shelter. Um, yep. you know, so I'm, I, that's, was it a, was it a pretty far off with the price difference or? Uh, no, I mean, with, with the free baggage, you know, just that's an advantage that I have that I know most people don't. Um, it was maybe like $500 difference. Okay. But you had a pretty big moose too. So you would have had to, I mean, would that count as one bag? How does that work? So, so really, so with, with what I have in terms of like my reward status, it's eight bags up to 70 pounds so essentially what the plan was was to flash freeze the meat and package it in like the styro those styrofoam coolers oh, and then cardboard boxes in 70 pound boxes and um you know do it that way uh, since we both got moose um you know my moose was i, I got probably over 300 pounds of meat and my buddy, he got a smaller moose, so he was probably more of like an elk size. So, um, you know, 250 to 300 pounds of meat. So if you break that up into 70 pound chunks, plus our plus our weapons, plus, you know, our clothes and all that stuff, we, we would have exceeded that anyways. Yeah. I mean, 36 hours is a long time. I mean, was the drive pretty rough even together or? So, um, you know, on the way there, it was pretty smooth and pretty seamless. I mean, you know, there's always traffic when you get into cities or close to cities and then, you know, the occasional accident that happens. But getting there, it was pretty seamless. You know, I'll talk about in more detail on the way back. We ran into a couple of hiccups, but overall, um, you know, it it wasn't bad at all. So definitely, definitely worth it to drive because, you know, on top of that, too, you know, we were we were able to bring extra gear and things like that and extra freezer space because, um, you know, while we were up there, we also if we killed a moose early enough, we also had the option to hunt black bears and some other things. So, you know, our, our thought was, OK, if we both get moose pretty early, it's a seven day hunt. We're there for seven days regardless. 
So, you know, if we wanted a bear hunt, then we ended up getting two moose. If we ended up getting two moose and two bears, you know, that's going to make things even more complicated for the flight home or wouldn't even allow us to have that option if we did fly. So, you know, we took some of that stuff into consideration as well. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like when you're doing something like that, it seems like that's going to be the best way to go. Cause I mean, even if you had to like rent a trailer and take it with you or something, it's still going to be, it seems a lot more efficient than flying unless it's just you and you have another way to get the meat back or the, you know, the metal. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll talk about, I'll talk about, you know, driving too with, with my elk hunt. I did that solo um and just lever leveraging the connections that we have through serviceide and the connections i have from people all around the country um you know to to do that more efficiently and effectively and at a lower cost but you know in terms of the moose hunt to break down the costs i mean if you if you want to hunt moose newfoundland is probably your your best bet to go in terms of doing it from a cost effectiveness perspective um you know we booked it in 2019. So the prices might be a little higher now, but you know, it was $5,000 for the moose tag lodging food and everything once you get there. And then between two people, you know, we split the cost for travel and it was around a thousand bucks. So, you know, I did this whole moose hunt up in Newfoundland, you know, all in for around six grand. Yeah. I mean, that's not bad when it's all said and done, that's getting stuff home and everything. Yep. Yep. And, you know, you could, you could pay for the processing up there and everything too, but you know, I, I killed my moose on the first day, not to spoil the story, but you know, I had, I had six days. So I was able to process the whole moose and package it myself before we even left. So as soon as I got home, it was all packaged, ready to go. And I just threw it right in the freezer. Nice. Yeah. So that's the way to do it. That's why I love knowing how to process food because even if it's an animal i haven't killed like a moose i know i can figure it out for the most part you know yeah yeah and it, it's really interesting you talk about bringing trailers up and all this stuff um you know we went up there with two people all our gear and two big chest freezers and just a, a regular pickup truck with a six and a half foot bed oh, nice. so you know we were able to do that with with no issues i want we were originally going to take my truck because it has a cap on it but uh i had some warranty issues i had to get taken care of so i didn't we didn't want to risk you know something happening with my truck on the way up so we took my buddy's truck but he didn't have a cap um so we were able to load every all our gear and stuff in the back seat and just have the coolers and stuff in the bed of the truck but uh you know one thing too if you if you put a cap on your truck you, there's additional advantages because you could throw all your gear in there and lock it up and you know it won't get wet from rain or snow or anything like that and then you really have the whole back seat to you know kind of make a bed and take turns sleeping back there as you drive along so yeah. that was the plan and uh we we would have been able to drive straight through without having to stop but because of those changes we ended up staying at a hotel overnight one night on the way there and one night on the way back and then with the seven hour ferry ride we did the ferry ride overnight so we slept the whole time on the ferry and then woke up it was morning in newfoundland and uh just drove straight up to the to the lodge 
Yeah, I think it's kind of that makes that always made me nervous. I've I've done that before. I have a cap now, but before I did, I it would always make me nervous with the especially being solo. Like you gotta put every you know the important stuff in the inside, and then obviously worrying about rain and um, all that stuff. So, but I mean, you guys made it work. So that's that's. I mean, that's really yep. all that matters. You made it work successfully and got it done. So, I mean, if anything, that just shows you that you don't need every little thing as far as a cap and this and that and be able to lock it in and still get it done. Yeah, and don't and don't waste your money buying $500 Yeti coolers and things like that either. It's it's really a waste when you're going on long trips like this. We use We use chest freezers. So I have a chest freezer that's empty all of the time that's – dedicated to going on these long haul trips you could pick up a seven a seven cubic foot chest freezer from walmart for 150 bucks and that seven cubic foot chest freezer will fit an entire deboned moose in it no problem um it'll fit a and it'll fit a whole bone in elk as well and the advantages of that too is if you're driving and you do want to stay overnight at a hotel bring an extension cord there's outlets all over the place on the outside of these hotels and just plug it in overnight and it'll keep your meat frozen throughout the duration of your drive. Um, most of the time, you know, when I get back, the meat is still frozen and I have to let it sit out and thaw for extra day before, um, you know, completing all of the processing and everything. So, you know, don't waste your money on these big Yeti coolers, five, six, 700 bucks and you need more than one you for a big animal like that so your best bet is to go to walmart buy yourself a 150 dollars seven cubic foot chest freezer and use that to carry your meat with you yeah no that that's solid and uh, you know we're at the point now where you can even probably get one on like marketplace or something you oh know, yeah just something yeah. to keep it where you can plug it in and there's not a ton of uh no significant value to it. It's getting it done. Like you said, they're the same price as coolers. So they're way cheaper than coolers and they're lighter too. I mean, that chest freezer, I could pick that seven cubic foot chest freezer up myself and put it in the back of the truck. Some of those big Yeti coolers or Arctic coolers. I mean, they're heavy too. Oh yeah. So, you know, and then you, then you put 300 some pounds of meat in it. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah, for sure. No, that's, that's solid. That's, that's good advice there for sure. Going on those, uh, you know, if I was to go out west, that's exactly what I would do. It would be take a freezer. Yeah, and even for the elk hunt, I, I mean, I did this elk hunt for next to nothing, and I'll talk about that later. But, um, you know, people who think that it it costs a ton of money to go on these trips and all of that stuff, you know, I've almost mastered a ways to do it at a, you know, very low cost where – essentially the tag is the most expensive part of the whole entire trip for sure yeah it's either tag for me or airline ticket most of the time because i mean i've i'm like you i've mastered it to the point where it's like you can do this and obviously being a numbers person like it you anything can be budgeted out even if you're on a budget like you can yeah. even if you don't have a disposable income you can budget right i've literally done hunts mm -hmm. where i put back 50 dollars a check you can't you know you can yeah. put back 50 bucks a check it, it all, it all comes down to how much you want to do it. It really, like if it's something that's a priority in your life that you're dedicated to doing and you're, you really enjoy, you'll find ways to figure out how to do it. And it, and the, 
the folks that sit there and complain about how expensive things are and how expensive outfitters are and guides and travel and worried about getting the meat back and all that stuff, there's really efficient ways to do it at a low cost. And, you know, that's why we're here to help out with that and, you know, give, give our past experiences and, and lessons learned on, on how to do this effective ways. But without that willpower, you're just, you're just going to sit there and dream about it your whole life and never actually do it. Yeah, for sure. And we've got tons of resources to help with that. So always feel free to, to hit us up. There's somebody here that can help you in any, really any situation. Yep. Yep. But to get into the hunt, um, which I'm, I'm really excited about, um, you know, I've, I've hunted moose, um, before, but, uh, this one was a pretty cool hunt. Uh, we got up there and, uh, went in and, and sighted our guns. And, you know, this is something too, that everybody should do that often gets up whenever you go on a long trip, whether it's with your bow or with a rifle or muzzleloader or whatever, before you ever go out, you know, you have to make sure that your gun is still functioning properly and, you know, nothing got, nothing happened on the way up there. You know, even if you're flying, you know how those baggage folks treat your luggage. Oh, yeah. Dude, I've watched <laughs> them slam like they were trying to, like, slam trash in the trash can, just slam yeah. my rifle on the, on the counter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you put fragile all over the box or whatever you do. Um, you know, that stuff is going to get jogged around and everything, you know, on a flight. And then, you know, even when you're driving, even in the back of your truck, you're going, you know, on these highways, a lot of roads are crappy, you hit potholes and all that stuff. You never know what's going to happen. And it's a good thing that I did it this hunt because, you know, we went out to shoot my rifle, um, you know, a couple hours after we got there and got unpacked and everything. And, uh, it was shooting like six inches to the right. And, uh, you know, I had to, I went in there and readjusted it and, you know, this was a really good rifle with a really high end scope on it. So, you know, even, even the best of optics and everything, stuff can happen on those, on those drives and, and during those flights. So, you know, never overlook doing that. I shoot my bow every time I go out, um, before I even go hunting on the long haul trip and, and same thing with my rifles and other weapons, because, you know, even at close ranges, that that's make or break your hunt sometimes. You know, even like these moose hunts where you have really good success rates, um, you know, you might only get one chance at a moose the whole week. You know, my my buddy shot his moose on the last day, and it was the first moose that he saw on the whole trip. So, you know, just because these outfitters and stuff, they claim, you know, 90-some percent success rates, you know, you never know what's going to happen out in the wilderness. So you, you have to set yourself up for success and make sure all your stuff is squared away before you even go out. So, um, so we did that, adjusted my rifle, got that all squared away, and then woke up early in the morning. I was super excited because the, the guy that I was hunting with, he said that we're going to be going out all day where all the other guys out there said they were going to come back for lunch and everything. And, you know, the guy that I was hunting with, he was under the impression, well, it's the rut and these moose are moving all day long chasing cows. So you never know when you get a, when you'll get an opportunity. And, you know, that's exactly, you know, what happened on the first day. If, if we decide to, 
only hunt the morning and go back for lunch and then hunt the evenings, I would never got a chance at the, at the moose that I got. So, um, get out there first thing in the morning and, you know, Newfoundland is, uh, is a pretty interesting place. They have, you know, as we were driving up through there, you know, you have this mix of like almost Rocky mountain type terrain and, uh, and vegetation and all that. And then you drive through that and then it just turns into these big swamps and bogs. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of the area where we were hunting. Um, muck boots were a necessity, not an option. Um, you know, cause you could be walking along these bogs and, you know, you have to, you have to be very careful how you're walking too, because there's soft spots in these bogs. And, uh, you know, some of them are so soft. If you take a step, you could fall into one of these holes and, you know, be up to your neck in swamp water in a second. Oh man. Like at, like that time in Florida, when I got stuck in that mud hole, you remember? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what's, what's different about this. I mean, you're, you're, it's almost like you're constantly walking on a waterbed. That's how squishy mm. the, the terrain is. Cause it's basically just this like layer of, plants and roots that you're walking on and underneath it is just all water so like when you're walking through you got to be very careful about these like soft spots and you know there's ways to identify them based off of like the the vegetation essentially that you're walking on um and uh yeah there was a couple people that they they stepped in it and like you know they were instantly waist deep in in the bog oh you man. know yeah, got soaking wet. So, um, pretty interesting terrain. And then there's all these like streams that, like these small streams that run throughout these bogs. And the moose like to go down into these streams and just hang out in there and feed and, you know, stay wet. So, first thing in the morning, we get out, we got to, into these, one of these big open bogs and we're standing there calling for a little bit. Uh, nothing really responded. So, you know, we kept walking around some more and, uh, we walked right up onto a cow moose. And, uh, what was, what was really, what's really interesting about moose, their, their eyesight must suck because, you know, it's like wide open where we were standing and we came up onto this moose and, uh, she didn't really see us at first cause she was down in one of those little streams. So we started calling at her, doing some cow calls at her, and she walked up out of the stream into the bog, and she's just staring at us. And, you know, as as long as we were calling like a moose, she kind of thought we were a moose. Um, so, you know, that was, that was pretty interesting to see. So as long as we were still, like she knew, she saw that there was a thing there, but because she heard the cow calls, she thought it was another moose. But, like, the second that we started walking, she she took off. She realized it wasn't a moose. But we called at her for a little while because it was kind of weird. Like, we're in the middle of the rut, and here's this lone cow just hanging out. We thought for sure there was going to be a bull around. So we, we called at her a few times, and she responded once or twice, but, you know, no sign of a bull. So we ended up messing around with her for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and then, you know, determined that there wasn't a bull with her yet so she might have might have not come into heat quite yet but um ended up moving on to a different spot so kept walking around and then you know during that time the clouds rolled in and it got really really windy and we we were just walking around doing cow calls trying to get a bull moose to respond and 
you know, we finally heard a bull moose respond and, uh, you know, I got, I got really jacked up. And then right after that, we heard a cow call. So we were like, darn, this bull's already with a cow. It's going to be really hard to try and pull him off the cow and, uh, you know, get him to come in. So we kind of circle around to get on the right side of the wind, you know, just like with, you know, typical Western hunting in the U.S., you are, you're always playing the wind. You don't really worry about, you know, trying to cover your scent because it's near impossible, especially when you're walking around all day and, you know, sweating and all that stuff. So you're always just trying to walk on the right side of the wind so that they don't uh, they don't smell you. And then we got, you know, fairly close to where we thought they were and uh, decided to sit down on the edge of this wood line, hoping that the the cow will come out into you know a different open open bog area to feed in the middle of the day and that bull would follow her so sat there for you know maybe two hours and had our lunch and everything you know it's around 12 o'clock i guess and uh uh you know we we kept calling they kept responding and all of a sudden they started getting farther away um and uh, we're sitting there thinking, you know, what our what our best bet is. And, uh, you know, at first, you know, we were hesitant to try and stock up on these moose because, you know, once they once they see us and we don't get a shot, you know, that that those moose are gone and they're probably not coming back. So really only have one chance at them. But really, since the wind pick up picked up, the woods were really, really noisy. So I made the executive decision to uh, try and stock up on them anyways, knowing that we'd probably make some noise. But, you know, depending on where they were and, you know, strategically working our way through the thick pine trees instead of out in the open, you know, we had a good chance of sneaking up with them as long as our wind was right and it it stayed pretty windy. So around one o'clock, I would say we got up and, uh, you know, started putting a stock on these two moose and we walked probably about a mile, maybe a little bit more all through these thick pine trees, super thick. Like you can't see 10 yards in front of you, just walking, creeping really, really slow, um, you know, and just constantly looking. So we, we have a chance of seeing them before they see us. And, uh, we, we made it to the edge of this wood line overlooking, you know, another bog. And, you know, as soon as we got line of sight to the open area, we saw on the other side of the open area, the, the bull. So we got, got really excited, basically low crawled in the, in the swamp up to the edge so we could get a clear shot at it. And, uh, we were actually able to sneak up, um, into 40 yards of this bull and this cow moose. And uh, as soon as I put the scope up on this moose, the bull decides to bed down. Oh. And he, him and the cow both bedded down right on the edge of the bog in, in the thick pine trees. So you, as big as these things are, like the only thing I was able to see were its antlers. And uh, so we stood there not moving for probably about two hours uh because we probably it was probably around two o'clock when we first saw them 
And we stood there and watched these moose just bedded down for about two hours, just waiting for them to get up. Cause we didn't, we, we didn't want to try and cow call or anything like that to, you know, disturb them and, you know, make, make them think something sketchy and just get up and take off. So we really wanted to, you know, wait for them to get up naturally and then, and then make the shot happen. So we're standing there and for two hours, the only thing I was able to see were, were the antlers. And like, that's the worst thing oh, to yeah. be, he, he was a good, he was a good sized bull. And, uh, you know, I'm just staring at these big paddles sticking up out of the pine trees the whole time. And that's the only thing I was able to see. And, uh, it got to about four o'clock and we're like, well, if, uh, if we want a chance at getting this moose out today, we gotta, we gotta make something happen or otherwise, you know, we're going to have to leave it overnight. And, um, the, the issue with leaving the moose overnight isn't necessarily like ground predators um you know the only thing they really have out there are coyotes and they're actually really big coyotes they're almost the size of a wolf they actually call them like coyote wolves or something like that um it's it's the bald eagles um the the guy was saying that you know earlier in the year during the archery season they had to leave a moose overnight and they didn't quite cover it up all that much and there was like 20 bald eagles the next morning fighting over this moose carcass so yeah yeah so it's it's pretty crazy the 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 bald eagles up there so but anyways um you know we decide like okay we're gonna we're gonna do some calling and trying to get this try this get this bull to stand up so i could get a shot off at it so we started cow calling and neither of them moved (laughs) <laughs> from from 40 yards away which i thought was pretty interesting you know i guess this bull he had his cow and he didn't really care about another cow yeah, yeah. so so then we then we started making some bull grunts and after the first bull grunt you know he instantly got up to start looking around <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> as soon as as soon as he got up i put him right back down shot him right right in the lungs <laughs> with the 300 ultra mag at 40 yards so that that bull wasn't going anywhere. Oh, um, dang, man. Yeah, yeah. But I was super pumped. It, it was a really cool hunt. The the guy I was with said, you know, he never he never put a stock on a moose like that. He's he's always called them in, and you know, never pulled off something like that. So I was I was really glad that you know we got to do that. But really, in that one day, I got the full moose hunting experience. Really, you know, calling moose, hearing them grunt, hearing the cows go, and all that stuff, trying to call them in. And then ultimately, you know, stalking into 40 yards. Like I I was contemplating bringing my bow and I decided not to, but I could have shot that moose with the bow all day. Oh, dang. Was it, I mean, I'm sure it was pretty nerve wracking too. having to wait that long. He's right there. Obviously they're not gentle forest creatures. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I had, I had my pack on, I was standing the whole time. So like, you know, you know how it is standing still for two hours with a pack on and, you know, your, you might, you know, your rifles up, kind of up mostly the whole time because you don't know when they're going to get up and, you know, potentially having to make a quick shot. So, you know, I was, I was hurting too on top of that. Oh yeah, I'm sure, man. And then, I mean, obviously then you got the factor too of, you know, I, I wouldn't say buck fever, but bull fever, even though, you know, you're similar to me, like we can freak out after we shoot it, you know, I want to get it down, but 
Um, it's still exciting and exhilarating to be that close to an animal. It doesn't even know you're there. And then having to, you know, him aggressively, you know, he was ready to pound down something there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, it was, it was definitely exhilarating and a ton of fun. Got up to him. You know, I think it was like a, you know, a softball size hole that I put in him with a, with the 300 ultra mag that close. Uh, it was, uh, you know, perfect shot through both lungs, and it was uh, it was awesome. Yeah, did the cow just take off, or? Yeah, the cow the cow jumped up and <laughs> ran a little bit, and kind of kind of stood there, you know, about fifty yards out until we finally walked out of the of the woods there and and got out into the bog to go over to to get the bull, and then she she took off. Isn't it crazy how that happens? Like when I shot my buck the doe did like two little skips after and then waited for a while. And I was like, should I take her? And I was like, no, I'm going to wait. And, yeah. And I'm sitting here like, did you not hear that? Like my uncle <laughs> said he heard it in his house. He said the, and I was a ways, you know, I was a good, gosh, a, at least a minimum of a thousand yards from, yeah. from the house and up in the mountain. And he said he could, he's like, I could hear it in there. And I'm like, how did that doe? Sometimes I feel like it's so loud that they almost, either don't know or don't understand or yeah i think too i mean she probably didn't even know what was going on i mean they had no clue we were even there Maybe they you know i think it's like thunder too or something yeah i mean we 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 i mean the cow didn't even get up when we started doing the bull grunts the bull was the only one that got up so you know <laughs> that's crazy. they weren't they didn't even have a clue that that we were there the entire time Oh man, you guys didn't want to go uh, a meat eater on him and start taking paddles and just run running through the woods. <laughs> yeah. A little different in real life than TV. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, but but yeah, no, he he was an awesome bull. I don't I don't do measurements or anything like that. But the only gauge is is I ended up killing the biggest bull out of the fourteen people that were, you know, at the lodge with us. So. You know, super, super lucky, super fortunate, but, uh, man, was it awesome. And, you know, we got up to the moose and, you know, I start, I start going to town on it and, you know, he's like, well, we can, uh, we can just go get the Argo and, and pick it up. I mean, we were three miles back from the nearest road and I'm like, you got a machine that'll go through these bogs and rivers and everything. It's like, oh yeah, these Argos are something else. Oh, man. um, we, we didn't have any service, so he went off and tried to get cell service to call the guy who, who has the Argo, and uh, I started gutting it, and he said, you know, we could throw this whole moose on the Argo and, and bring it back. So I started gutting it, and, um, you know, we basically cut it in half in two pieces, and uh, he comes back and says, uh, the, the guy with the Argo, he's, uh, he's in the hospital, so he's not coming. <laughs> Um, I'm like, oh man, so this is going to be great. So we ended up having to pack the whole moose out three miles back to the truck through this bog. And man, that was probably the toughest pack out that I've ever done in my entire life. Even though it was all flat, you know, just walking through that like waterbed type terrain and then, you know, having to cross multiple streams and everything man, it put a hurting on my legs. It, it was almost like walking on, walking on the beach with like a hundred pounds on your back. 
Oh man, dude, that's rough. <laughs> yeah. Did you get it all out in one pack out though, or? Oh heck no. Um, you know it. It took us. Um, I wasn't sure how many people you had with you. Or... Well, it was just it was just two of us at first, and then two more guys came uh, after dark and helped us pack the rest of it out. But I think it was maybe you know probably three in the morning. By the time we we got all the moose back, and then we had another hour drive back to the lodge after that, so we didn't get back till like four or four thirty in the morning. Oh my gosh, man, that's intense. Yeah, and that's yep. another thing about about hunting. You know, we we see TV shows, and you see someone's Instagram or Facebook, and you're like, oh, I want to go do that. Make sure you can do it. You know, yep. this isn't this isn't going out and i'm not knocking this i do it all the time this isn't no going out to your farm field and shooting a white tail and calling your buddies to help you pick it up and or doing it yourself like this is a whole different whole different i mean you said you got 300 pounds of meat off of it like what after it was processed though so i mean you were yeah and a I, lot more I, out than I, that. and i brought all the leg bones back too which in hindsight i probably shouldn't have done but i brought all the leg bones back too because i used the bones to make broth and uh, bone marrow and you know use the bone marrow and all that stuff so um you know brought all that stuff back too so it was it was well over well over 400 pounds um total that we packed out of there gosh that's insane man well plus, plus the head with the antlers now were you expecting that i know you do a lot of like elk hunting out west and stuff but were you expecting that type of pack out or did it kind of exceed your <laughs> So no, I was I wasn't expecting that type of pack out. I mean, I was I was prepared for it because I was also throughout the summer and everything prepping for the elk hunt that I was going on. Uh, so I knew I knew that was going to warrant at least one pack out. So I wanted to be prepared for that. Plus plus you know hiking through the mountainous terrain in New Mexico as well. So I wanted to be in good shape. So fortunately, I was prepared for it and you know ready to do it, but. Um, you know, my expectation was we were going to use the, one of these Argos to, you know, get the moose out. Dang. That's always something my brother always tells me. He's in Maine and obviously the moose aren't as big as what they are in Newfoundland. But, um, he, he tells me all the time, he's like, that's one of his, his number one concerns is being solo and, and having to do that. And he has like a little Ford Ranger. So he's always yep. like, he's like, man, he's like, I want to do it. And he's obviously put the points in, but he's like definitely got to work a little harder on logistics because and he's small he's a small guy you know yeah he's only yeah. he's strong but he's only gonna be able to, you can only do so much oh yeah yeah oh yeah i was definitely hurting after that but uh you know definitely well worth it the the moose meat is absolutely delicious uh i'll get into that in a little bit but uh you know first day i was i was tagged out so um you know, I had some decisions to make on, hey, did I want to go ahead and buy a bear tag and sit on a bear bait the rest of the week and, and try and shoot bear? So I, I went over and I talked to the guy who was baiting the bears and he said, yeah, the, the baits aren't really getting hit right now. You know, probably probably uh, going to be tough to get a bear this week because, you know, the weather was kind of like we had in Maine. It was it was rainy every day and cloudy and, you know, the weather just wasn't good and the bears weren't hitting the bait. So, you know, I was, I was talking with the guy I was hunting with and 
I'm like, Hey, what is there to, what is there to do? I mean, I want to, I want to get the whole Newfoundland experience. So he's like, Oh, don't worry about that. We'll find, we'll find plenty of things to do. So, um, you know, the next day we went out and uh, did some grouse hunting. They have a ton of spruce grouse all over the place. And uh, the spruce grouse like to hang out on all the logging roads. So they come out and hang out on the logging roads and they, they eat the rocks for their gizzards to grind up their food. So, you know, we would we would park off the side of one of these logging roads and just start walking the logging roads and look for grouse with a 22 and start plucking, plucking away at grouse. So. Nice. We did that for two days, and I uh, was able to bring a bunch of spruce grouse meat back, uh, which was it's pretty interesting. I haven't eaten it yet, but but I'm really looking forward to it. When I was when I was uh, cutting the breasts out of the grouse, they uh, the meat smells like um, smells like cranberries. So um, I'm in, I'm very interested in in what it's going to taste like. So looking forward to that. Haven't tried it yet, but I am in the oh, yeah. in the that's so Here. good. I wonder why yep. it must be something they eat, maybe or Yeah, maybe. I'm I'm not really sure, but uh yeah, very sweet smelling meat. So I'm sure it's gonna be delicious. I got a couple recipes in mind and I'm I'm kinda deciding on what I wanna do with it right now, but looking forward to trying the spruce grouse out. And then um after after we got our fill of grouse, we ended up going out on the boat and doing some scalloping and uh getting mussels. So Ended up also coming back with a with a bunch of scallops and mussels on top of that too. So yeah, I love those trips where you get like the full experience. I mean, just like in Maine when we went, like got yeah. to mushroom hunt, got to yeah. you know uh, do forage also, and then obviously the four other four types of hunting. But it's nice when you get the full experience. You know, they had just caught the lobster and the mussels for us before we got there. And yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was it was a ton of fun. Then one day, you know, we, we were going around. We haven't seen any caribou yet. So we, we decided to go out, you know, just scouting for caribou. And we ended up finding a couple nice big herds of caribou and got some good pictures of the caribou and got some pictures of seals and, you know, all that good stuff. He kind of took me around. We did a couple touristy things and, and all that stuff. But, you know, overall, it was an awesome trip, you know, it was successful. It was super exciting. And, yeah, I, I definitely plan on on going back there again in the in the future. Yeah, I'm gonna have to. Now, I don't know. You may have mentioned this. If if so, my apologies. I may have went by me there. But was this uh, just an over the counter type tag or? Yeah. So so how it works in Newfoundland, um, you know, the for for Canadians and for Newfoundland residents specifically, you know, they enter a draw for a certain number of tags that are allocated to the draw and they draw their tags. But on top of that, Canadian outfitters also get allocated a certain number of tags each year to sell um, to clients. And if you're not a Canadian resident, you can't hunt in Canada without a guide. So it's a way for these outfitters to gain additional business by having tags specifically allocated for their business. So each year an outfitter can sell as many tags as they're allocated to non-Canadian residents. And I think even Canadians can purchase them 
um, outside of the province. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm not exactly sure on this, but I think only Newfoundland residents can apply for that draw. So even if you're in Canada, but in a different province, you, you, you can't apply for the draw. So you still have to, you know, purchase your tag through an outfitter. So, um, that's, that's essentially what we did. So we booked the trip with the outfitter and our tags were guaranteed through the outfitter because they were already allocated to them. I got you. Yep. Um, so yeah, yeah. And then, um, you know, like I said, my buddy ended up killing a bull on, on the last day of the hunt and, uh, he ended up taking it to a processor just to, you know, have it all done and packaged for the, the way home. And, they actually stayed up and did his whole entire moose overnight and flash froze it. So when we went there, we literally put it in the chest freezer and then took off to, to go home. Um, and uh, on the way back is when we kind of ran into some of our travel issues. Um, as we were driving back, you know, one of those hurricanes was coming up, up into Newfoundland and, uh, canceled our ferry flight um for that night so on and this is one of the advantages of having a cap on your truck well my buddy didn't and the wind was so strong that it actually even though the we had the uh lids of the freezers um ratchet strapped down the wind was so strong that it broke one of the ratchet straps and ripped the lid of one of our freezers right off and it went flying off on the side of the interstate oh with all our frozen meat. Yeah. So um, we ended up getting out and finding the lid and we had to re-bend it back into shape and then take like six <laughs> ratchet straps and, re- and just ratchet strap the lid on the top of the freezer just so it would stay like, you know, sealed so that the meat would stay frozen for the rest of the drive back. I mean, we were three hours in of our 36-hour trip, plus it got delayed a day um, because of the storm um, with the frozen meat in the freezer. Gosh, so, man, that's insane. I mean, you can't escape him hurricanes. You just left one. We had I just know. left one the week before, two weeks before. It was ridiculous. So, you know, that's one of the advantages of, you know, if you're going on one of these longer trips, you know, it's worth the expense to buy a cap for your truck and, you know, keep that. Because if, if we took my truck with the cap on it, that would have never happened. But right, right. we we managed to take care of it. And uh, we, we were very lucky in that we booked the last room of the only hotel right next to where the ferry uh, terminal is. So we got to the hotel, made sure that, you know, our ratchet strap job was, was all good. And, uh, you know, again, having that freezer was a huge advantage because we were able to, you know, pull the extension cord out and plug the freezer in overnight just to keep, make sure that the meat stayed frozen overnight as we waited for the ferry the next morning. And, uh, we got on that ferry the next morning and, I've never gotten seasick, but I was as close as you can probably get on that ferry ride because the waves were still 10-foot waves. And as big as that ferry was with all those semi-trucks and other vehicles on that ferry, I mean, it was tossing that boat around like it was nothing. Oh, man, I bet you I got a little dicey. 
<laughs> oh yeah, it sure did. I ended up, I ended up laying down and, uh, you know, for that whole seven hours, just laying there trying to fall asleep. Um, but, uh, I popped a Dramamine and laid down and, uh, you know, the seasickness went away and, you know, the, the rocking of the boat put me right to sleep for a few hours. And, you know, after about four hours in the, the seas calmed down and, you know, it was, it was, uh, pretty nice on the way back. But, um, as we were coming back, we had this brilliant idea since we had to drive through Maine anyways, that, you know, what we should do is pick up some fresh Maine lobster and, uh, take those back with us and when we get back you know just kind of end the trip with some moose surf and turf so when we finally land landed on uh in mainland canada we drove off the ferry and took off uh we made it we made it to the canadian main border that night and stayed at a hotel got up the next morning got into maine and about halfway through maine we stopped off uh the interstate off one of the exits and uh we got a few uh live lobsters i had a extra cooler that we put them in wrapped them in seaweed put them in the cooler and uh kept the cooler cracked open and kept them alive for the rest of the 14 hour journey back to my house and uh i took uh took a set of the moose tenderloins out and uh let them thaw in the back of the truck on our drive back and as soon as we got home uh boiled up the live lobsters and made some moose steaks out of the tenderloins and, uh, you know, sealed the deal with, uh, some moose and lobster, uh, surf and turf. And man, that was delicious. And, uh, I was super shocked. It was my first time ever cooking lobster and, uh, did it perfectly. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I feel like you gotta do it. You gotta do it right with lobster or something of that quality. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure do. But, uh, Overall, it was an awesome trip. It's probably the the easiest and cheapest moose hunt that you could go on in the in the whole in all of North America. So, um, you know, if you're if you're looking if you're out there thinking about going on a moose hunt, the the meat is absolutely delicious. You know, Newfoundland is a great place to hunt moose. It's challenging. It's out in the wilderness. It's fun. You know. Those people up in Newfoundland are really great people, and it's, you know, just an overall great trip, and you can do it, you know, as cost-effectively as you can for a moose hunt, for sure. Solid. Yeah, I mean, it's great, especially, I bet you it would have been a rough, a lot more of a rough trip heading back, though, if you guys ate some tag soup before you came back. Oh, yeah. With the high of both of you guys getting bulls, and then... Um, obviously, you know, all the great table fare that you got to do with it, you know, you got to experience, get the whole experience, but, you know, even though it's, it's all about, you know, the experience, it's still, I'm sure made it a lot more enjoyable trip, you know, we'll talk about those hunts together. Oh yeah. And my, yeah, my buddy, he, he sure was sweating bullets. I mean, he, he didn't see a moose the entire time until the last day he, he, they ended up getting on a, on a smaller bull and he ended up shooting it. So he was he was super happy, super excited and super fortunate, but you know, that's not how it goes all the time. And, you know, one thing that I learned, it's, it's even more difficult. Like this is the first real outfitted hunt I've ever gone on because you have to up in Canada, but it's, it's a lot harder when, you know, there's multiple groups of hunters, like 14 hunters. And every day throughout that seven days, more like, you know, another person is bringing in a moose 
and uh you know getting excited and sharing the story and everything and you're sitting there with your tag not filled yet i think it it like psychologically it's even worse than you know if you did a do-it-yourself trip because you know when you're by yourself you know there's no comparisons to make it's just another day that you didn't get your animal so you try again day but when you're coming back after hunting all day every day and everybody else seems to be bringing in a moose except you you know it it really brings you down so you know in terms of encouragement i you know with my buddy i I was just encouraging him like man you can't give up you never know what day is going to be your day you just got to put a hundred percent effort in it every time even when it seems like it's not going to happen like you know we talked about this multiple times on and off the podcast it's kind of that concept like right when your mind tells you it's time to give up or turn around and go back to the truck or go home success is like right around the corner you just you just have to get past that um demotivation or or whatever your mind does to you when that happens and just you know keep pushing forward and you know it's happened to me multiple times i mean i got super lucky this is probably the first hunt that i've ever been on where i've actually killed something on the first day um but you know, it, it slips in my mind all the time. It's like, oh, man, I got a long walk back to the truck. I might as well just leave now. I'm not really seeing anything. Or, um, you know, another mile, my legs are sore, you know, things like that. And, you know, the the, the animal's right there. And you gave up just a little bit too early. Yeah, for sure. No, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's uh, success is always around the corner. And I, I talk to so many people that, that when I, when I ask them about, um, and it's obviously it's not always the case. There's so many other factors into it, but I feel like a majority of the time that's what that is the difference between a lot of people being successful and not like because I've I've had so many times just like you where you're like I want to go I want to go I want to go and you force yourself to stay and then right at the end you know you get the game animal that you've been chasing and yep. I talked I talked to uh, uh, Ezra not too long ago and he guides in Maine and he was telling me he's like man I had a client. And every day he wasn't getting a bear and same situation as your buddy. Everyone was coming back to camp with a bear. And he's like, why isn't this guy getting a bear? Like, I know they're there. They're coming to the sites, et cetera. Coming to find out, he goes up there a little bit early. And the guy had been leaving his site early and was already on the road. And he's like, look, man, you stay till dark. If you're worried about anything or you're scared, I'll come get you. Just stay in the blind. I'll come get you. Um, Mm -hmm. The guy did it, shot a bear that first, that very day that he changed up his tactics of staying longer, you know? So, I mean, we both seen it in Maine. The bears come out, literally, it's like they know. They, like, know it's shooting lights almost over. And they they come out. I mean, a lot of animals, you know, uh, obviously they're coming out for different factors. But as a human, it makes me think that they almost know. And you're on the cusp. But I've seen it, man. So many people, they're right on the edge. I'm like, man, if you would have stayed just a little longer, I guarantee you, you probably would have had success, you know, and you'll, that's something you'll never know. You'll never know that, you know? Yep. Yep, Absolutely. So, but you know, overall awesome trip, definitely plan on doing it again in the future. Once I I do that, I need to get my butt in shape though, but I definitely want to do it. Now what would have happened if you couldn't get that out? So the, the, what we were contemplating was, is probably leaving it there overnight and, uh, you know, finding a, finding someone else with a Argo to come and get it. 
Um, you know, they, they do that all the time, especially, you know, a lot of people that go up there, they're older and retired and stuff. And, you know, they can't, they can't do what, what I can do. So, um, you know, they really do rely on those Argos and they're, they're awesome machines. I got to go out on one and, you know, help a guy get, get his moose. And, uh, those things are unbelievable. I mean, they, they run down pine trees and go right through these bogs and then you just drive them right into the river and they turn into boats and drive them right off the, right out the bank and, you know, right up to the moose essentially. Um, it's pretty cool. But, uh, essentially the, the concept, it, the, the, really the thing is, is you essentially have to like bury the moose in like pine trees and stuff. So you have to cut down a, a bunch of pine trees and, you know, make sure that there's no like white showing or blood showing or anything like that. Cause that's what the Eagles are looking for. Right, right. Um, unlike, unlike ground predators, they don't really rely on smell. They, they rely on their eyesight. So, um, essentially what they do is they just cut down a bunch of pine trees and branches and just cover the whole moose, um, you know, with that and, you know, making sure that you can't see it and then, you know, leaving it there overnight and getting it the next day. Okay. I got you. I mean, that's good to know. Um, cause I was thinking about that. I was like, I guarantee a lot of these hunts is like retired people or, or maybe somebody that's disabled. And I'm like, you know, yeah. how are they doing this? If you're having a hard time getting it out, I know they would. Oh yeah. Yeah. When he told me there's a good chance that Eagles will get into it. I'm like, I'm not leaving this moose here. I'll pack the whole thing. out. <laughs> so that's cool. He was cool too, though. It was like, yeah, let's yeah. do it. You know? He, he was a he was an awesome guy if i go back like i'm gonna request him and only him you know basically i'm gonna say if i don't go with him i'm not gonna go because you know he was he was awesome he was a he was a true like wilderness guy like me he likes to stay out there all day he likes to hunt hard and uh, a lot of the other a lot of the other guides they they weren't really like it they were doing it more for a job more than uh than enjoyment this guy really just enjoyed being out there and and hunting and you know i had a great time with him you know you know with him too like he's the only one that wanted to stay and hang out with me and you know go scalloping and hunt grouse and do all this other stuff like the, these other guys that once they got their moose they were gone you didn't see him again oh dang man well that's awesome that you got the full experience and i feel like too you know being the kind of person you are and like networking around and stuff like you know, people like that, you kind of are a beacon, and, like, the ones that want to go, they go, and the ones that want to stay, stay. I mean, just like in Maine, the, you know, George and, and Michael were both telling us, you know, how, like, you know, as many people as they have, it felt like we were the ones that wanted to hunt, and they were willing yep. to do more for us because we were yep. more open to more things. Yep, absolutely. And uh, speaking of networking, um, you know, this is a prime example, you know, if you want to move on to, to my New Mexico elk hunt. Oh yeah, for sure. Let's, let's, uh, segue into that. So that's the next hunt that came up. So we did bear in Maine, yep. then we did moose in Newfoundland and now we're going to New Mexico. Yep. And in between all of those, I was just out there running the dogs, hunting birds. But, uh, but for this New Mexico elk hunt, I'm actually going to take us back all the way to last year. Um, because this is, this is really important and, you know, a really good lesson for any of our listeners to learn about, you know, how powerful it is to network with people and, you know, make friends and, and things like that. Like super, super important, especially like 
if you want to go out and do something new or something different or go on these long haul trips or, you know, you don't have the budget to be able to, you know, afford, you know, expensive hunts each year. This is this is a prime example of how you can do this and, um, you know, ultimately, like, be good for others and, you know, see see how that comes back in return. Um, so take this back all the way to last year. Um, I drew a muzzleloader tag in New Mexico. Um, and, uh, I believe I'm pretty sure we did a podcast on this elk hunt. You know, I was literally just thinking about that when, when you started talking about it, I was like, you know what? We, we did do one on this. We just didn't do it on the Turkey. We couldn't fit them both, but yeah, we did talk about that trip. We, we did do the elk hunt, but I did leave out a lot of critical information that I didn't think would have been relevant at the time, but now is super relevant. Oh, nice. Uh, so I won't get into the details of last year's hunt itself, because you could go back and listen to that podcast, whatever episode that was. Um, just probably search for New Mexico elk hunt that, uh, you know, from last year. But uh you know, essentially, I went out there by myself, didn't know a single person at all, um, drew this tag, knew nothing about the area, and just decided to go out there and, and wing it and figure it out. So, went out to New Mexico, ended up shooting a really nice 6 by 6 bull and uh, in the evening, and it took me, all, again, took me all night to pack it out, you know, same kind of thing, you know, making sure that you know what you're getting yourself into from a physical preparedness to, you know, go out and hunt elk and make sure you get the whole thing back to your vehicle and, you know, be able to use the meat, but, you know, spent all night packing, you know, cleaning it up and packing it out. And it was around like, I want to say seven in the morning the next day. And, um, you know, I, I got all the meat back and took a nap and then went back and to get the head with the antlers on it. So, I'm just coming back from doing that. It's around seven in the morning and I'm parked on the side of this uh, BLM road and uh, you know, a truck stops because they see me loading up the, the elk in the back of the vehicle and uh, guy rolls down his window and it's a, it's an outfitter with uh, this guy um, that has a client. This guy's like 80 some years old, super old guy. And, yeah, I, I just start talking with him. He's like, oh, nice bull. Thanks. You know, I'm from Pennsylvania. First time out here. Didn't know what I was doing. You know, blah, blah, blah. Trying to, you know, just figure it all out. And, you know, the this old guy starts talking. He's like, yeah, this is my, my first elk hunt. And it's probably the last hunt that I'm ever going to go on. So, you know, I hired an outfitter to, you know, help me get my first elk. I can't really walk anymore. I can't really see anymore, you know all these things. And, you know, I've always wanted to get a bull elk for above my fireplace. And, you know, this is going to be my last hunting trip ever. And, uh, I'm like, Oh man, that that's really cool. But, uh, I don't know where there's some elk right now. You know, I just saw them while, you know, I was packing this, these antlers out and the guy goes, Oh really? I'm like, yeah, you want to, you want to go kill this bull? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. So, I dropped everything I was doing, put it in my truck and, um, hopped in this guide's truck that, you know, I didn't know or anything like that with this, with this client, this old guy, we go driving down the road and, 
you know, I lead them up right into this, this herd of elk and, you know, there's a bull, small bull, but a small bull, but, you know, few cows with them. And, uh, you know, we get up and, you know, we got, we got this guy there and, you know, he can't, this elk is like a hundred yards away and he can't find the thing in the scope to save his life. I mean, when, when he said his vision was bad, I mean, it was pretty bad. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like standing behind him trying to like adjust the gun. I'm like, well, it should be somewhere around here. Look through the scope. And it felt like it had to have been like a half an hour <laughs> before this, this dude finally finds the, the bull in the scope and, uh, he shoots it and it takes off and we see it fall down. And, you know, this guy is just as excited as, you know, a 12 year old kid shooting his first deer. Like oh, yeah, he was awesome. he was so pumped up. I mean, like happiest, most joyful guy that you've ever seen. And, you know, getting this, in this little four point elk and uh, you know, we were so happy for him. And, you know, obviously he's like 80 some years old. He can't pack this thing out. So I ended up helping the guide um, pack, pack this guy's elk out. And uh, we go through all that stuff. We get back to his truck, and he's like, "Hey, why don't why don't you come back to our lodge? Um, you know, we got a meat shop and everything. You could you could uh, clean your elk and hose it down, package it up. You know, we got an extra room. You can stay in it. Like you you really did us a solid by, you know, getting this old guy a bull and uh, getting us up on it and helping pack it out. It's like you got you have a room to stay in and." you know, you come here and package this thing up and, you know, whenever you want to head out, you know, just, just be on your way. And I'm like, Oh really? Yeah, that would, that would be really awesome. So ended up, we drove back to my truck and, you know, I followed him to the, to the outfitters lodge and, um, you know, awesome people. And, you know, they had food for me. They had a, a nice bed, a shower and everything. You know, I was like, you know, felt like I was living large and yeah, in the back, <laughs> head in the back of my head i was like you know if if we go back to when i you know was going to show these guys these elk i'm like it took me seven years to draw this tack i'm not going to be back here for forever so i mean the the elk that are out here now are going to be good and dead so it's like you know i'm not losing anything at all by you know helping these guys out and oh yeah um, man that's a good mindset to have and not to not to interrupt but just to interject like i I think a lot more people need that mindset when you're in that type of situation. Like I do it all the time. I'm not going to go to this WMA the whole year. Why would yep. I try to help someone out? Now, obviously I want them to be, I don't want to say deserving of it cause I'm not the one to pass judgment. But like you said, you, you know, in that situation, like you, the guy seemed very humble and it was his last hunt and you know, you, you'd already seen something. Why would you keep it to yourself? You know, at that point. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, ended up going back there and I spent, I actually spent a couple of days there, you know, just processing my elk and I did the same thing. I, I packaged it all up right there and everything. So when I got home, I didn't have anything to worry about. I just throw it in the freezer and, and call it good. But, you know, the whole time I was there, I didn't really hang out with the other, you know, clients cause they were all up in the lodge and everything. I was down in the meat shack with all the other guides. Nice. So I, I made friends with, you know, really good friends with three or four of the guys is just, you know, shooting the shit and, you know, talking about all the different hunts we go on and all that stuff. And, you know, just hanging out with them, having a good time those couple of days. Well, you know, that, 
that blossomed into, you know, some really good friendships. So, you know, ended up, you know, going back to Pennsylvania, all that good stuff. And then, uh, my, my buddy recently got married out in, uh, Durango, Colorado. So that was, um, that was in July. So me and the wife flew out to Albuquerque, ended up renting a car and driving up to where we were hunting. And I met those guys and, you know, me and the wife hung out with them for a couple days. You know, we went out prairie dog hunting. My wife got to shoot her first couple prairie dogs. So that was nice. a ton of fun, just, you know, hanging out with them and catching up with them and all that stuff. And ended up going to my buddy's wedding up in Durango, driving up there and, uh, came back and literally not a week after and you know just to you know explain first of all how tags work in new mexico new mexico is a complete random draw so there's no points or anything like that for elk it's it's a random draw so you know your name goes in the hat just as equal as every everybody else and uh if you get lucky enough to get pulled you get to go elk hunting in new mexico so no, no difference between residents and non-residents, anything like that. No point system, just a, a complete random draw. And that's why, you know, it, it typically takes a while to, to draw your tag out there. But New Mexico also has a landowner tag program where, you know, there's two different types. There's um, private only landowner tags and then there's unit wide landowner tags. Um, I don't know too much about the specifics of, you know, which ranches are, you know, get unit wide tags versus private only tags i think it has something to do with um uh elk habitat within the ranch so if there's elk habitat within the ranch the ranchers get issued unit wide tags but if they use the unit wide tags they have to open up their ranch to the public during public hunting seasons so even in New Mexico, like there's private land that you have access to as a, you know, if you draw a tag for those ranches who have these unit wide landowner tags allocated to them. Essentially, these landowners can either use the tags themselves or they could sell the tags to either outfitters or, um, you know, just regular individuals. Um, same thing with the private tags. The tag is different, but it's a private land only tag. And uh, um, you can only hunt private land that you have written permission for to hunt with those private landowner tags. So anyways, my buddy calls me up that I that I met in New Mexico and, you know, were, was hanging out with before my buddy's wedding. And he said, hey, you know, um, the, there's this one landowner I'm good friends with. He's got two private only landowner tags um, for elk. And you're the first person I thought of wondering if you want to come out there and, you know, hunt elk with me, either sex tag. And I'm nice. like, heck yeah. And, um, you know, just for everybody's reference, you know, if these tags get sold to an outfitter, an outfitter typically turns around and sells these tags for anywhere from six to $10,000. And, um, the, the landowner we got these tags off of wanted a case of beer. Man, networking is king, man. I'll never networking is king. <laughs> oh, so, I mean, that's really like one of the key takeaways of, you know, just being a good person and, yeah. you know, 
helping others out and doing the right thing. And you never know who you're going to meet and who they know and all that stuff. And, you know, I became friends with these guys because they were awesome guys to hang out with and, you know, be friends with. I had no expectations of future hunting opportunities or, or anything like that, you know, and if you go through life with that mindset of, you know, trying to make friends and, you know, be around good people, then, you know, these things kind of come your way. If well, I mean, I you totally agree, man. You couldn't have said it any better. It's, it's true. Yeah. So, I mean, now this guy, he's like a, he's like a little brother to me. Um, you know, we talk all the time and hang out and everything, but, uh, you know, really awesome guy. And, you know, what a, what a really great opportunity. So there I go again, um, back out to New Mexico this year. And, uh, you know, to talk about travel again, too, I made the executive decision to drive out there. Um, you know, flying out there for a solo hunt is much more manageable. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot harder to get elk antlers back and all that stuff. And, you know, it's, it's doable for sure. Especially if you have people out there that can, can help you out and all that and like mail stuff back for you or, you know, however you want to work it. But, uh, I decided I was going to drive out there and, you know, this is where like leveraging the server side members is really key. Now I, I just, you know, I have a lot of connections all over the place just from work and, you know, traveling and, you know, friends I've just made everywhere. But, um, you know, I could I could go to pretty much any state that I want to and have a place to stay and a and a hot meal. So, you know, what I thought about, it's like, oh, I could just drive out there and, you know, just catch up with friends along the way and take little breaks and meet up with them for lunch or something. And, you know, I got a buddy in Tulsa where I could, you know, that was right along my driving path where I could stop and, you know, stay the night at his place and all that stuff. But, you know, when you think about these things too, there's members all over the country that are more than willing. You know, I even think, I think I even put a post up on Facebook with my driving route asking who's close and would, you know, be open to letting me stay overnight if I drove there and back. So, you know, definitely, definitely consider that as well. I mean, we have a lot of awesome people within Serviceide that are, you know, willing to open their doors and help you out. And, you know, I, I gave my, I gave my buddy, I, I stayed with him in Tulsa. I gave him a whole elk leg, you know, on my way back. And, uh, you know, he, he loved that. So, well, too, it's, it's, you know, it's, and, and I tell people don't get discouraged. Like if it, let's say, you know, you put a hunt link up or you're, you know, going out, out West or whatever, and you want to do something like you did. Cause I do the same thing when I go to Virginia, I do the exact same thing. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to be in, you know, even if we can't hang out, we'll go grab some wings or something or a beer. Um, but I tell people don't get discouraged because when I first joined, I mean, many years ago, I would travel to a different place and I would do that and I wouldn't even get like a comment on it. I'd get like a, maybe like a good luck. And now yeah. after all these years, I'm telling you, I'm the same as you. Every state, I have at least a minimum of one to two people that I know for a fact I could go into their house, sleep in a spare room, have food just because, and now sometimes it takes the, the train a little bit to get going. But if you're a good person, like you said, like a lot of people are sitting back and they're waiting they're waiting yep. to get to know you. 
I hang out with people now that I didn't talk to my first couple years. They were probably sitting back trying to see what kind of person I am. Now, any opportunity, any point in time, all I got to do pretty much is slide the credit card and say I'm coming. <laughs> like, yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge benefit that I think it's overlooked with this program. I mean, oh, for sure. even the even aside from the hunt leaks, I mean, the, the people are, all the people are great and the resources that we have, you know, to be able to make trips like this more affordable. I mean, you know, that's, that's 200, $300 that you don't have to spend on hotels and food or things like that. And, you know, throw them, throw them a chunk of backstrap on your way back. If you get something. Oh, there's always ways to, to barter. And I've done everything from, offering money but i tell you what no one ever wants to take the money yeah um, it seems like everybody you know money comes and goes it's the it's the bartering I, I do the exact same thing when i went up to virginia um i took hog meat and they freaking loved it they're like oh we made meatballs with it and then we grilled some tenderloin and honestly i told them i'm like i can actually cook it better i kind of didn't have what i needed to cook it and, and they were like no this is the best this is the best ever and i'm like really because it's kind of actually mediocrely cooked um <laughs> I was like, to be honest with you, it's actually a lot better if I had the proper things I needed. Um, and they're like, no, this is amazing, amazing. And, I, and the guy wouldn't let me give him gas money. He wouldn't let me do anything. He's like, you're my guest. And yep. uh, his name's Mark. He's out of Virginia. But he, he was like, he wouldn't let me do anything. So I was like, well, at least let me give you some sausage and stuff. I brought up a ton of sausage. I brought up a ton of tenderloin because I knew I could give it out. And I was like, at least let me give you that. And he's like, okay. <laughs> yep. Yep, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, these are these are all prime examples of ways to be able to do these dream hunts that people want to go on that, you know, just haven't yet or they think it's too difficult or too costly to do so. Well, it's like you Uh, said, you got to you got to do priorities and we always make time and we always make things happen that that we want to do. I've been doing different hunts my almost my whole life and I went from you know buying 10 cans of beanies and weenies and spam and all that to now I dehydrate my own meals. Like you you evolve with with everything, you know, and if you can do it then I always look back I'm like how did I go on those trips then with the money yep. I used to make? And I always would go on them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and to put it in perspective, like this hunt specifically this year for elk, I think with all travel tags, everything total spend was like right at $1,000. Oh, yeah, that's solid. You know, you can – I'm a firm believer that, you know, once you get the tag part out of the way and stuff, you can do most any trip for $1,000 yep. or less anywhere in the country. Yep. You know. Yep. Now – now, you know, that too also incorporates, you know, the, I mean, you know, drawing the tag was the same price, even though we bought the landowner tag, um, for a case of beer, you still have to pay for the tag to New Mexico game and fish, which I think is like 550 bucks or something like that. Um, so the tag itself still costs 500 bucks, even though we essentially got the code to, uh, submit to game and fish for next to nothing um but even if you draw the tag you're you're paying that 550 bucks or whatever it is in new mexico and that's actually you know really cheap uh for an out-of-state tag you know if you look at colorado it's set over 700 bucks montana i think is over 800 bucks you know wyoming is closer to 900 bucks 
you know, that's just for the tag. So, you know, all in all, New Mexico is even cheaper, you know, for, for an elk tag. You know, it's definitely one of those sleeper states. I've been, um, and that's obviously a resource that I take advantage of, even though I, I'm a full-time employee for ServiceSide, is um, the, the, I guess, accessibility of a lot of these places, these sleeper states. Like, I mean, you got states like you told me about New Mexico. I've had other people tell me that Arizona, you know, Oregon. I got a guy out in Oregon that posts hunt links every year, and he's like, man, like, come out here, like, you know, come hunt. He's like, I'm telling you, like the the odds are good. There's blacktail, there's elk, there's all kinds of stuff. And he's like, and no one wants to hunt here. And even though this yeah. is, I mean, this is a small podcast, so I'm not worried about uh, masses of people going to these states. Um, you know, we, we have a few hundred, couple thousand downloads. So, um, but he he definitely that's something that's opened my eyes to that. I mean, even states over here on the East Coast, I've heard of many states that that don't get hunted hard like you would think. Um, sleeper yeah. states, man, you know, people hear the words New York or New Jersey, or, you know, I got one guy that's over on in Long Island and the guy's, you know, going after 180, 190 inch deer all the time. And it's like the average. Yep. And he's like, no one, no one hunts deer here. <laughs> I mean, I even, I even just, just found out the other day that there's a couple of units in Southern West Virginia that are like trophy units for whitetails. And, uh, unlike the other areas of West Virginia, it's only one buck a year. You have to shoot a doe before you shoot a buck and it's archery only for all seasons. And, you know, you go down there and there's giant whitetail bucks everywhere. And like, nobody knows about it. I, you know, I, I lived in West Virginia for a year and a half and didn't, didn't know about that. So, you know, there's always these, you know, different opportunities that if you do enough research and talk to the right people, you, you figure it out. Well, too, being a good person, I think is a huge play in that. Cause I've had many low, you know, I'm always, a, I always say it all the time. No one knows more than a local and I've had plenty of people and it doesn't matter about Facebook or Instagram or not that stuff. There are so many places that only a local is going to know about. I mean, I could take you to places in Virginia that literally you have to drive up private roads and it's marked private and they're like no trespassing you would never know this as a as a non-resident you would turn around if you were a non-resident thinking you know went the wrong way and then you get up there a little farther and boom state game lands and what happens is these some of these locals do that on purpose i mean it, unless the man's coming out there which isn't often um it's not getting checked it's you know where i took you turkey hunting where we went and took those pictures um that road there i don't know if i had told you but there's a patch a little bit before that that's actually public land it's a small patch and they've always had it marked as private and i'm always like yep. that's public land like why is that marked like that i parked there one day and a guy actually walked up to me and was like what are you doing here this is private property i'm like ah my map shows that he's like no that's wrong that's wrong and i'm like well i'm gonna go get it checked because maybe onyx is wrong and i went and got it checked and i'm like no this is this is public land every everything says it's public land um yep. and, and guess what now i drove by there the other day state forest sign nailed into the tree all the way down never was there yep. before so yep. you know things like that you never know went to a spot in virginia drove up his private road for two miles <laughs> and i say private road but it's actually a public road it's just um labeled private you know by the people yep yep, yep. sure thing but you know, I was re I was ready to be like, "Hey, you guys, I'll uh, I'll give you some deer meat or some some duck if you don't, you know, run me off here or 
go deliverance <laughs> on me or anything. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So you finished with, uh, you finished with New Mexico here. Now, what are you doing now? Well, you know, before we, before we end on New Mexico, you know, there's another key takeaway that I do want to talk about, oh, about yeah, this. Ahead, trip. Um, you know, and, and this is something that's really important too, you know, and I, I, it's, it's a misunderstanding. I mean, up until this hunt, you know, I kind of figured it that way as well, but you know, we had, we had private only tags, right? So we were only allowed to hunt private property in areas where we had written landowner permission. So when, when I got there, you know, we spent a whole day, the day before the first day of, of our hunt going around and, you know, doing it the old fashioned way, knocking on doors and, you know, asking landowners for permission. And, you know, um, what I thought was going to be very difficult was not at all. Um, a lot of these ranchers were, you know, extremely friendly and, you know, gave us permission. We ended up securing over a thousand acres of private land to hunt all to ourselves for this, for this hunt. But, um, you know, I think one of the, one of the things people think is, you know, they're, they're, they're always like looking for private land and private land being better for hunting and all this stuff and, you know, not being pressured and public land is too hard and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I really got humbled on this trip because, you know, we were going around and, you know, we were glassing up elk all over the place on the, the forest land and the BLM land as we were driving around asking for permission on, on these ranches. And, you know, everybody has this like preconceived notion that it's so easy on private land and, you know, all these private land tags, you know, everybody's getting their elk on the first day and there's so many of them. It's like pick and choose which one you want. But, you know, in the case of this hunt specifically, we didn't see a single elk on any of the thousand acres of private land we had access to and a thousand acres isn't a lot in new mexico when you're surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres of public land um we didn't see a single elk and and these tags are only five day tags you pick the start date and you have five days um to hunt these elk on days one two and three we didn't see a single elk we saw elk sign everywhere. We talked to the ranchers who, you know, say the elk are all over the place on these ranches. But these these three days, we didn't see a single elk, but they were everywhere on the public land. So, you know, for all you out there thinking that, you know, private land tags are a joke and it's super easy, like, oh, I can just go buy a private tag and you know, it's kind of like cheating. It's so easy. There's always elk on private land or, you know, any animal for that matter. You know, it was a lot more difficult hunting these elk on this small, these small portions of land compared to, you know, what's, what's out there in New Mexico um, and trying to be successful in five days. And, you know, in my opinion too, five days, to hunt elk is not enough time. It's extremely challenging. Um, typically on the elk hunts that I go on on public land, it takes like three or four days just to even find the elk. 
And then, you know, on a five day hunt, you might have only one day to actually hunt elk once you find them or not even see an elk at all within five days. Usually I'm killing elk on day six or seven of a seven day hunt. You know, it never happens that quick. And, uh, you know, this was the case on this hunt. We, we covered every inch of the over thousand acres of land that we had access to to hunt and not one single elk in the first three days. Um, and then on day four, we didn't see anything that morning. And then in the afternoon, we decided to hike up this one mesa or this one ridge and glass down into an area that's kind of secluded and, uh, you know, has a bunch of pine trees and stuff um, where we thought it was probably a good place for an elk to bed down during the day in the shade. And we got up there and we finally saw a group of like four cows. Um, so I was, I was really wanting a bull. Usually I'm not picky and I had a either sex tag, but you know, my buddy, he, he really just wanted elk meat. So he didn't, he didn't quite care. So, you know, we made a deal. Like if I don't fill my tag, we'll, we'll split this elk. And, uh, you know, he, he ended up shooting one of the cows and, uh, they took off and, uh, but not a single bull with those cows. Um, so went down, packed that thing out, you know, with two of us, it didn't take that long. We got the, we got the cow out, no problem. And then there it was on day five, you know, three days without seeing an elk and, you know, four days now without seeing a single bull on any of this property. And, uh, again, hunted all day long and didn't see a single elk so you know i was at the point of you know you know i was probably an hour away of you know eating this tag which you know beforehand i thought was going to be a walk in the park just like everyone else probably thinks um but uh right right at sunset um, you know, we went up to this one ridge and started glassing and sure enough, I mean, there was, man, I, I looked at the watch after I shot it, there was like five minutes left of legal shooting light. So I probably, I probably shot it with five, like 10 minutes left of legal shooting light, but, you know, really nice bull came out and ended up, you know, shooting him at 350 yards with the, with the rifle right at the last second of the hunt. Um, but yeah, same thing goes back to, uh, you know, never giving up and, you know, working as hard as you can up until the very last second. And this is exactly how that hunt turned out. You know, I feel like, you know, going back to the private land thing, and I mean, this is an unfiltered podcast, so I'll, I'll ruffle the feathers. You know, I I always had that mindset, too, of just things you see and, and you know, the misconceptions of social media and just, you know, we see that guy with the 170-inch whitetail buck that he shot with a bow, but you don't see the five years before that he was chasing after it and, you know, there's a lot of things you can't see in a photo or a video or that's purposely not told. And I've always heard that misconception too. And it's like the more you hunt, you realize that like it doesn't matter if it's private or public. I've been to public land. We've tagged out the first day. I've been to other mm-hmm. public lands where I've went there for years and I'm still yet to fill a tag. And I know the area like I would know my, you know, the schematics of my house. Like, you know, it's it's crazy how 
how each area is different and people that close their minds and say, well, this public land's like this because one time this happened, I'm like, there's literally five WMAs within an hour of my house and they're about to open up another one. Like there's, there's, there's WMAs that have certain rules and that are open certain times a year that some people would never know about. And I'm sitting here like, and then I've been to some private land where, yeah, you know, it was maintained to a certain level where your success rate was slightly higher. Um, then I've been to other places where you are almost guaranteed success and you got there and you didn't see anything. Um, it's yep. always different. It's a, it's a wild animal. So unless it's walking out of a cage moments before you pop it, there's really a lot of other variables that will come into play. And when I hear or see these Facebook discussions of, well, he got it on private or this, I'm like, what, is, what does that even matter? I've literally taken game on public land where I walked 30 feet from the truck and shot it. You know, my biggest buck was within 50 yards of my truck on an old back road. Like, it, it had nothing to do with, with being a, a woodsman or any of that. At that point, that was just luck. I was got up yep. at the right time and decided to leave at the right time. And he just so happened to be cruising the ridge, you know? Yep. So, it's, and, and in this instance, too, it's like I walked 15 miles a day for four days. Actually, four nearly five days and never even saw a bull elk up until you know literally the last minute it's all you know it's all so many variables though even the moon has to be aligned you know (laughs) yep and you know you never know like you know the next day there could have been a hundred elk on those private ranches oh yeah yeah man you, you never know and you can't set expectations for any kind of hunt you have to go in it with the same mindset every time that this is a wild animal this is a challenge and i need to do everything i can no matter what to try and find success and it doesn't matter doesn't matter if you have the most pristine tag if you have private land all to yourself if you're hunting public land if you have a tag that you you know you took 20 years to draw the tag because that's how hard it is to get that tag with points or you have an over-the-counter tag, you know, you never know, and you always have to be, you know, at the top of your mindset, and, you know, strategically hunting as if, you know, it were the hardest thing to hunt in the world. Yep, no, couldn't have said it better, man, yeah, that's true, we went on that snow goose hunt in the spring, I don't know if I told you this, but we literally, in our bed, uh, um, Airbnb, we were right on this lake that was right near where we were, um, hunting and the birds in theory were going to go from that lake they were going to fly over us and they were going to head you know back to canada well we could hear them at night hundreds of thousands of birds you could just i mean it's deafening you could hear them on the lake and went there the next day all of us are motivated we're hyped we were hyped the whole week we were there but didn't we seen one bird he ended up getting into our decoys at one point in time didn't even know we all fell asleep pretty much and woke up and he flew off but it wasn't nothing we didn't even care it was one bird it was like six of us um but yeah. it was crazy how we all you know we thought we had it in the bag like we were in an area where the birds were there and we missed them by a night even the guy we were with was like dude i think y'all missed him by like a day i'm like i think we did too guy i know two hours north heard him hundreds of birds they killed hundreds of yep. them 
Like they were literally yep. like drawing stuff in the in the sand with the birds. They were killing so many, <laughs> you know. Like, and I'm sitting here like, gosh. And there's there's nothing because I asked myself, what could I have done better logistically or planning or anything? There was really nothing we could have did better except get there the week before. Like that was. Yep. You know, but a year in advance, we had planned this a year in advance, a year in advance. You don't know what the birds are doing. Yep, absolutely. Or any, any animal, I say the birds for this situation, but any animal, you don't know what they're doing. I mean, I talked to so many people that had their best years this year and then talked to other people that are like, gosh, I didn't see an animal. And these are people yep. that are, I would call good hunters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or they, they got with what they, they just weren't looking for what they wanted. They still obviously would get in your game. You know, all hunters, if you're not seeing game, there's definitely something wrong in a bigger picture of things but um yeah but um so we're going in about two hours here man we'll we'll wrap this one up um and we'll definitely get you on again soon as we come into our off season it's a lot easier to to jump on these podcasts and stuff but we always like to leave our listeners with a little something i know you gave some tidbits of information that you know we'll put in the show notes and help others but of all these hunts that you've done out of state what would you say is would be a number one takeaway for someone that's trying to do this too yeah i mean that's that's a really good question um you know it it really does come down to that one thing that i've i've harped on is you know, leverage, leverage the people around you and the expertise around you, especially, you know, within the service side program, we have tons of people all over the country that have a lot of experience doing different things. And don't be discouraged by, you know, how far away it is or how much it will potentially cost you. You know, if there's a will, there's a way. And if it's something that you really want to do, Take the time out of your day to research it, network with the people around you, get advice and plan the trip. I mean, even if it's two years out, you know, learn, learn the, learn the different systems for each state, like which states you can more easily get tags, which states have higher success rates, where you should start building points, ask the service side members around you and just, you know, do do those things and be a good person and help, help others out too with the things that you're really good at. Like, you know, we talked about this before too, around people always think they don't have anything to offer because they think like an out of state elk hunt is like this. I want to say like mesmerizing thing that seems unreachable. And for someone to help them out to achieve that is like, you know, an act of God and they don't think they have anything in return, but you talk a lot of talk with a lot of these people out West, like they want to come out and whitetail hunt. A lot of them never whitetail before they they're, they're working on their Turkey slam and they want to get an Eastern Turkey or a, you know, a, a Rio Grande Turkey in the Midwest, you know, something like that. And, you know, they feel that about the things that you have that, you know, you're searching for. So don't think of it in terms of like, oh, this hunt is so out of reach that it's it's going to take so much effort for them to help me out that I don't have anything that spectacular in return when you actually do, even if it's public land, like, you know. I was, I was talking to my one buddy in New Mexico. I'm like, oh yeah, we could, we could kill a buck and you know, we could get like 
you know, as many doe tags as you want, essentially, until they're sold out. Like, you want three does. If you just want meat and then, you know, get your first whitetail buck, come on out. And he got excited about that. He's like, you know, some of these people, you know, they hunt elk in really pressured areas. Like, you go four or five years without killing an animal, and then you come out east, and it's like you kill stuff every year. Yeah. And that, you know, and that's just as exciting, too. So, you know, don't think you have nothing to offer because you definitely do even if it's public land or even if it's a cot or a air mattress on the floor you know whatever that is you know people are people are so willing to you know work with things like that just for a, a great experience with good people and you know just be a good person who's willing to help people out and that'll come around i mean that's that's how I've built all these relationships is, you know, I was the one that did something for someone first and then down the road, they thought about me for something else, for something I helped them out with. So go out there, help others like fulfill their dreams and hunting or fishing or, you know, giving them advice or, you know, giving them, you know, some of your knowledge or expertise and you know, it'll come around. It's not going to be everybody, but there's people out there that will remember that and remember you being a good person to them and helping them out, you know, when they were struggling or trying to get something that, you know, they couldn't achieve. And they'll think of you um, in the future to help you out with something that you're striving for. No, for sure, man. That's that's an amazing takeaway. And Hopefully people will hear, heed the advice so that they can continue growing in their hunting experiences because, you know, with stuff like this, especially when you've been doing it as long as we have, you know, uh, it's it's never going to get better than networking. Like you're never yep. going to, that's what the hunting world and the hunting industry is based around. Like being a hunt, good hunter is great, but the people you know and the relationships that you establish, they're, they're you know, they're priceless. So, um, I definitely appreciate you sharing it with us, man. And and sharing that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And, and don't go into it with the expectations that you're going to get something out of it. Go in it, go in it with the expectations of you're going to help others. And, um, you know, that's, that's really the best way to do it. And, and people will remember that and, and be grateful for that. For sure. For sure. Well, Brian, I definitely appreciate you jumping on, man. We'll uh, we'll be talking more soon, um, especially as we roll into turkey season here. But um, I definitely appreciate you taking the time out to do this, and I'm looking forward to getting this episode out this week. Yeah, man, let's do these more frequently so we don't have to spend two hours catching up. Oh, for sure. Well, we will, and as we come into the off season, it'll be a lot easier. I, I mean, well, I don't really have much of an off season until summer, but it's a lot easier to do these. You know, small game. We'll be small game hunting, so it's dark at five o'clock, so it's a lot easier. Yeah, sure is. I was I was out running the dogs right before this podcast, so. Awesome, man. Well, uh, thanks again, man, and uh, y'all are listening to Hunt Link by Serviceide.